Welcome to the Prime Life Project Podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James, and today I'm joined by Mr. Mark Smith, who's an army veteran who almost died in a tragic firing range accident back in 2011 when he was shot seven times in his leg and shoulders. After being medically discharged from the army, he took up bodybuilding and totally transformed his appearance. After winning various bodybuilding competitions, he then turned his hand to strongman, where he, was, where he won his first ever strongman competition and became, became Britain's strongest disabled man. This episode is going to be awesome. But as always, if you take any value from today's episode, please like and share it with a friend. Also, don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. I've got more amazing guests coming up for you throughout this year, and I cannot wait to share them with you. So, as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Pramla Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James, and today I've got Mr. Mark Smith. Mark, how are we? Hello, mate. You all right? Yeah, good, thank you. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, very much looking forward to this. Uh, I, I can't actually remember how I came across you because obviously I reached out to get you on this podcast, uh, and I think you posted in some sort of forum or group that I'm in on Facebook, uh, and obviously it popped up about this amputee footballer, and I thought, right, well, I want to uh, delve more into this. And then when I found more about your story, I was like, I've got to get this guy on my podcast. <laughs> and uh, like I said, it, it, just chatting to you just then off air, like I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and then I was doing my research into you. I love how you talk about how you got to where you are now and you sort of see the funny side in hindsight of some stuff that went on, which I'm looking forward to sort of getting into. But for my audience that knows nothing about you, can you just take me back and paint a picture about uh, yourself and your background in the army? Yeah. Um, from sort of a teenager, I wanted to I wanted to be an infantryman. Um, I had my mind sort of set long before my GCSEs that I wanted to be a soldier. Um, and I, yeah, like I said, I wanted to be an infantry soldier. I, I wasn't really interested in sort of trades or anything like that. I wasn't looking past that as a career. Um, I sort of put all my eggs in one basket, really. Um, so, yeah, when I turned 18, I was able to join. So I, I joined the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards. Um, and, yeah, I, I loved it. It's, uh, I'd had, obviously, I'd, I'd not lost my leg. I'd, I'd still be I'd still be in now, I think. Um but one of the things that sort of appealed to me was obviously the sort of active nature of the job. Um, I never, I never really sort of liked being sort of sat down and stuff when I was at school. I, I only really sort of enjoyed PE. So, <laughs> um, so the army, especially sort of such an active job, um, seemed quite fitting and it, yeah, it was everything I wanted it to be. Um, and one of the other things was I wanted to, I wanted to sort of travel, see the world, you know, I've, I've sort of some independence and that at that age. What uh, what places did you end up going to in the end? What uh, I, I I got to see plenty. Um, I I served on operational tours in in Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Um, I got to go sort of to places like Jamaica for sort of jungle warfare training. Um, Canada, the Falkland Islands, uh, Kenya. Um, so yeah, I got to I got to see lots of the world, which. I'm really sort of lucky. Uh, I'm lucky I lost my leg after a few years in the army so that I'd already <laughs> been to those places. So, uh, how long were you in the army for? Uh, 10 years by the time I was discharged. So um, had you worked your way uh, like up the rankings when, while you were there? Yeah. yeah. So uh, about six months before I lost my leg, um, I'd recently passed something called Junior Brecon to become a section commander. So uh, I left as a Lance Sergeant. How high up's that? Uh, so... You're a section commander, so you're responsible for sort of ten to twelve men. Okay, so, yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, so with that, uh, this is uh, obviously something I asked uh, Ralph when he was on the podcast because um, he he went into quite a bit of detail about the build up of his story because obviously uh, his whole thing was bomb disposal. So yeah. it, we went into quite a bit of detail about that. But um, what was it like the first time you got shot at? Because I imagine the, the idea of going into the army is all fun and games until yeah. you actually are for the first time getting shot at. So I asked, I asked Ralph that same question, and his response like w- w- was quite funny. So, what, what was your what was your reaction the first time you got shot at? 
Um, the very first time, uh, I was, I always seem to have like a bit of a sixth sense for when things, things were going to sort of potentially go wrong. Um, and it was a night patrol. Uh, we had found an IED earlier in the day. So we were going to put an ambush in place at night, uh, overlooking this, this road, this route that was used. Um, and come the set of orders, the platoon commander told me that I would be sort of point man for the patrol, um, which yeah, was, was quite sort of yeah, quite nerve wracking. I had that, I had that sort of horrible feeling. So I, I sort of said to him, mate, I got a really bad sort of feeling about this patrol. And yeah, sort of within 10, 20 minutes of being out, uh, we were ambushed ourselves. Um, and like I said, that was the first proper contact uh, in terms of being sort of shot at. Um, and like you said, no one, no one, no one knows how they'll react until it, until they're put in that situation. And I, I got a, a fit of like nervous giggles. Um, and I, and I did, uh, I did for every single contact that we were in. Um, there was, there was myself, the platoon commander and another, another young lad, um, sort of stuck out in the open, sort of pinned down. Um, and as it would turn out when we would patrol that area in the daytime, the route that I took, we were ever so slightly in the dead ground, which, you know, meant that the rounds came, came close, but, but missed. Um, and it was that, that sense of, well, this is it. Um, but I just remember we were trying to sort of crawl back into cover, but, but every time that we did, you know, the, the ground around you was sort of spraying up. And I just remember sort of looking at the platoon commander and, and the other lad and, just getting a fit of the giggles um and it 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 rubbed off and yeah I, I never quite saw that the first time of being sort of that close to to death of just giggling um because i heard you said in another podcast you were just like well if i'm going to go down like at least i'm having fun and i, yeah, and I thought i thought yeah. that was as soon as i heard you say it, i thought that's that's brilliant like rather than almost being like worried whatever it is you, you just like well Okay, I'm gonna have a bit of bit of a laugh, and obviously I know it's like nervous giggles and stuff, but still, it's yeah. it's better than like being nervous. Because it's something that always fascinates because that's what you train for. Like you are literally trained for that, but there's no amount of training that you can do that will put you in that exact same situation. So I'm always just curious at how you actually respond to that. And again, I, I, I didn't then um, when I did my research, I didn't actually know that was a story of the first time, but I didn't realize it actually come that close. So yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot funnier when they miss, but obviously, <laughs> and when they hit you, it hurts a bit more. So, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know if it was a coping mechanism or something like that, but every single contact on on that particular tour, um, I just used to sort of have a have a quick look around me, and you would you would see certain lads reacting in different ways, and I don't know why I just I just used to giggle at at what was going on, um, but yeah. I, I enjoyed it. it I, I found it such an adrenaline rush and it was fun. It was, I, I wasn't cut out for the peacekeeping side of things. I enjoyed the kinetic stuff. I, I enjoyed that side of it. Um, so I, yeah, it was probably like a, an equally sort of enjoyable laugh as it was a nervous one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's, cause again, I don't want to spend too much time um, of, of your uh, active service. I want to go into obviously the accident and then the, the amazing uh, transition that you, you've gone through. Um, but what's one thing that you actually learned from your time in the army? Um, like now that you've looked back at your time there, what's one thing that really stands out for you that you learned? Um, I think the biggest thing I took away is uh, for, for that tour in particular is that when it when it mattered uh in those in those situations i was still able to do the job to the best of my ability um as, as i mentioned not everyone knows how they'll react and you can either sort of embrace it or it will sort of eat you up and you'll you'll crumble in those situations so i think the biggest thing i took away was being able to look at myself in the mirror and know that when it mattered i could do my job um, and that's something that, you know, regardless of what I've done since I was, I was very proud of that. That's, uh, and again, I think when we get into your story further on, I think that's clearly something that has followed you outside of the army as well, that actually when, when, when shit is the fan, you're prepared to back yourself. And again, that's something I don't think a lot of people have. They don't have that faith in themselves, uh, yeah. regardless of being in the army or not, but just in, in everyday life, when, when things get a bit rocky, they don't actually back themselves to get the job done. So I think that's yeah. amazing. So can you... 
um, tell me the story uh, of what happened in Canada. Can you sort of paint the picture uh, of what things were like uh, and sort of the build-up and then obviously what happened when you were there? My my role for that particular part of the exercise, um, I'd recently finished the six-week pre-deployment training we were doing as a regiment ourselves. And those of us who were sort of lance sergeants and up were qualified to oversee live firing ranges. Uh, so then the opportunity to train up the next regiment going through their pre-deployment. Um, so lads like myself and, and the higher ranks uh, stayed stayed out in Canada to, to train uh, the Yorkshire Regiment. Um, and when conducting live firing, you will progress up. So you'll go down a range as an individual, in a pair, as a fire team, building up to sections and platoon and company attack. So it it's a bigger scale, um, the more competent everybody is. Um, so we'd, we'd had the week leading up to that, um, built up to, on this particular day, a platoon attack range. And I remember, I remember you saying you weren't quite happy with the, the safety of the, the facility as a whole throughout your time there. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, even as exercising troops ourselves, when we went through it um, with our own regiment, there were some hairy safety angles, so to speak. Obviously, those ranges have been plotted out. And I think sometimes the people that run the ranges, the, the officers and so forth, um, they all want their ranges to be the most realistic, the most sort of testing, challenging. And I think there's a fine line in the forces between sort of realism and safety. Yeah. Um, and in, in my opinion, with some of the near misses that had happened in the run-up to this, an element of the safety was uh, sort of being sacrificed for for making for outdoing the ranges and, and yeah. making them as realistic as possible. Mm. Um, so yeah, this this particular range uh, was platoon attack. Um, the lads were uh, in armoured vehicles for the first part. Um, they would then debus out the back, clear um, a bunker position. Uh, from the moment they debus, it was those of us that were safety staff to follow along behind. Uh, not only were we looking out for the safety aspects of the range, but also watching their drills, their tactics, testing them. So we would tap certain lads on the shoulder, right? You've you've stepped on an IED, you're a casualty. So you're testing their, their casualty evacuation, everything like that. Um, so the first position was cleared fine. Uh, second position was uh, advanced onto a trench system, um, and again, you're you're watching how they're sort of working their way through the trenches, and then it advanced onto compound clearances, similar to what it would be in Afghanistan. And I'd felt in the run up to it that my safety in particular was a was compromised um, based on a, a lack of equipment. There were some bits of kit and equipment I should have had that I didn't. Um, so I went into that particular platoon attack um, feeling a little bit, a little bit unsure going on um, a bit. I, I certainly felt like considering I was safety staff. Not very safe. <laughs> not very safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the, the sort of. Because you, you, you text your, um, I don't know if it was your wife or your girlfriend at the time, but you'd actually text her that morning. Again, that sixth cent you mentioned, you, you actually said, I don't actually feel okay today. There's something about today, didn't you? You actually yeah. kind of almost preempted what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd text her early. Obviously, with the time difference, it was it was early doors for us. Um, yeah, just saying I've, I've, I've got a horrible feeling about today, which obviously I suppose wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have put her mind at ease. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, obviously, as it turned out, the, the first platoon attack range ran um, and... I'd I'd aired my concerns, but there's there, there comes a point where with the rank structure you have to sort of put up and shut up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so we we stopped for lunch, went through, and it was on the second platoon attack range that um, as that section that I was following advanced on to clear their compound, the first lads went into the first room, and I I was the other side of the wall, and um, they were only only MDF buildings. They were they get shot to pieces for six weeks, knocked down, replaced, and the next regiment comes through. So thin walls, um, 
and like I said, I, I was I was the other side of the wall. Um, the lad that fired obviously was unaware I was there, um, but yeah, I took I took several shots. Um, basically, went in through the back of me, so through my backside and and out through my groin, and then I had one that had, that had obviously like gone through my shoulder as well. Um, How many shots did you take in the end? Uh, seven in total. Fucking hell! Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was. I, I felt, I felt every, every one. Um, and because did you, know, we, did you, did you know what happened? Do you know, as soon as obviously you hear the shots, did did you know instantly that you had been shot? Yeah, yeah. The I'd never felt a feeling like that. It was just the the, the best way of describing it was sort of an intense, like an overwhelming sort of burning cramp sensation. Um, and I remember as I sort of fell to the ground, I was holding sort of my hamstrings. Um, and yeah, I, as soon as I laid on the floor, um, yeah, I knew I was sort of in trouble. Um, but there was a little, there was a sort of an element of confusion that followed that because obviously we were tapping lads on the shoulders, telling they were casualties and man down was getting called. So when man down got called for myself, for a, a split second, people thought it was another sort of role play casualty mm-hmm. um, until the lads sort of saw the blood from because I had an arterial bleed. It had, the rounds had hit my femoral artery, and that, the, 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 the the time of a bleed out on that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's that's pretty. You've got like minutes, if that, to to sort that out, haven't you? Really? Yeah, yeah. It takes four minutes to completely bleed out from an arterial bleed. So oh, fucking hell. Um, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, once once the lads had had realised it was a a no duff casualty, so to speak, the range was stopped, um, and some of the lads who were going through the range came over. The safety staff obviously closed in, and um, two lads in particular sort of took control of the situation and started treating me. Because um, something else, so, that I, something else I heard you talk about was the fact that everyone that was on that range, so to speak, should have had uh, a tourniquet and morphine or something, but they didn't. So that in and of itself was not good. So what happened with that? Did you have to go through that whole time without having any sort of morphine? or How, how did you get saved without having this tourniquet? <laughs> yeah, so where our regiment had done sort of numerous tours by that point, it was sort of standard procedure for us to all carry two tourniquets, morphine, first field dressings. Um, but the lads that we were sort of overseeing for this particular range hadn't, they hadn't been on an operational tour to Afghanistan before that. So things like that weren't part of their drills. Um, so I was just lucky that the safety staff I was working with had years of experience between them um, and all all carried tourniquets, all carried first field dressings. Um, but no morphine. So yeah, the two tourniquets were applied sort of one above, one below the exit wound. Um, but yeah, I, in that entire sort of experience, I didn't have any, any form of pain relief. So, what, um, if you can, and you can sort of go back into that sort of situation, what was going through your mind? Because you, you clearly would have known at that point it was quite serious. What was going through your mind? Um, I, I actually remember I'd, I'd done sort of medics courses and, and stuff like that in, in the lead up to sort of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I knew, I knew everything that the lads were doing was the, the right thing for me and, and to, to keep me alive. So they were, they'd obviously tourniquet the leg, which like the pins and needles that kicked in with that was, was almost worse than being shot. Um, <laughs> and They've got, to go, they, they, they've got to go tight, haven't they? There's tourniquets. Yeah. You don't fuck around with them. You've really got to like, yeah. Basically, I mean, basically trying to stop the blood flow. They sort of they caught my uh, they caught my my genitals in there, so <laughs> I didn't I didn't react too kindly to that. <laughs> so obviously that one had to be taken off and reapplied. <laughs> but yeah, they they were keeping my leg elevated. Um, so I knew sort of after about 15 minutes of tourniquets being applied, then you're then you're in trouble. Um, and the more intense these pins and needles got in my foot. So I was, I was getting quite agitated. Um, and then 
they were sort of reassuring me that the the heli to sort of aeromed me to hospital was on the way um and it seemed to be taking forever um and then how long, how, how long did it take for the helicopter to get to you um it actually took in total 90 minutes to get me fuck off yeah 90 uh, minutes with no morphine yeah, yeah. fucking hell mate um, yeah they, they they talk about on operational tours there's the possibility that i had this happen in afghanistan i may still have the leg um you have sort of the the platinum 10 minutes the golden hour um and obviously i was i was way past that um and the the pain then almost sort of disappeared and i felt just overwhelmingly relaxed um and that probably concerned me more than the pain um, because I, I knew, I knew feeling that relaxed and that warm, that, that sort of cozy in that like, situation. Like close, close your eyes, go to sleep kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. Trying to fight, sort of just going off to sleep. Um, you know, if, that, if that's the way you go, it's, it, it's peaceful. It was, I, I, I was sort of content. It was as if someone, I suppose, had given me plenty of pain relief I, I felt just really relaxed at that point um but I, that there was the sort of thing in the back of my mind of trying to fight that because I knew I knew that wasn't a good thing um but one of the lads um had obviously sort of read the signs could could see that I was sort of disappearing um so yeah hit me hit me sort of as hard as he could in the face <laughs> and uh yeah, it, obviously that that sort of brought me straight back round. Um, yeah. So, so generally looking back at it in hindsight uh, with this whole situation, have you actually spoke to the lad that shot you? Did is, have you um, have you spoke to him at all? Something that must be for him awful because again he didn't know you were there. It was completely accidental. That must have been hard in of itself for him. And then you also mentioned something about the fact of if you're in Afghanistan, you probably would have had your leg saved, which in of itself is fucking bizarre that you're in Canada. And it took longer. So, in hindsight, with those, those two things, and when you look back, uh, how, does that almost like piss you off to an extent, or do you have any sort of ill feeling towards anything? No, I mean, in particular, the, the lad who it was, you know, there was no malice in it. He 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 saw a target on a wall and, and fired at it. Um, my from from lads who were on the range with me, there's question marks over whether the target was on the right wall. Um, sort of failings failings that had sort of happened in the run-up mm-hmm. to it um but for him in particular as soon as I was sort of off off life support and talking and stuff I wanted to speak to him just to you know put his mind at ease I suppose um but because we were from different regiments it mm-hmm. took about nine years to be able to sort of track him down to just let him wow. know I was all right. Um, wow. I, I bet he appreciated that because I imagine that would have been a very, very heavy burden for him to carry. Yeah. Yeah. By the sounds of it, they were led to believe that I'd died. Um, so, wow. Yeah. Um, it, it was one of my big things that I wanted to thank the people I'd been working with because uh, we were all from different regiments all thrown together. And I wanted to speak to him just to sort of, you know, no hard feelings basically i'm i'm still here um wow. and that took a, that took a long night it was only through social media i was able to get in touch with those people um that that's quite that's quite disturbing me it it's quite disturbing it took you so long to get hold of him because yeah. for nine years that guy thought he'd killed someone for a yeah. complete accident and then this whole time you were trying to basically say to him look i'm okay and it's that end yeah. of itself is bizarre um yeah. so you then get evacuated out um you actually died didn't you yeah yeah, I'd, um, I think that that relaxed feeling sort of came back on the heli a little bit. Um, so when it eventually turned up, the lads carried me on the stretcher, got me on the helicopter, and I was on my way to Medicine Hat Hospital. And yeah, I I suppose in my mind it was like I'm safe now. I can I can sort of chill out. I'm I'm looked after. That's literally what Ralph said. That's what I went. 
Yeah, so Ralph, Ralph, uh, Ralph talked about he had the exact same thing. So he was basically saying, because again, he was on active duty when it happened, he kept saying he got that same feeling, kept saying to himself, just get up to the chopper, get to the chopper, get to the chopper, get to the chopper. And as soon as he got there, he completely relaxed. And the same thing, he, he died um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the helicopter as well. Um, yeah. So how, so you get on the helicopter, you died to bring you back. How long was it till you were actually awake and conscious again? Um, I had gone on to life support. I had then been um, transferred up to Calgary uh, where they could sort of deal with my injuries a bit better. All of that I was completely oblivious to. And I came around two days later. Um, every time they tried to bring me off of life support, um, I was sort of struggling. So I still had the leg for the first two days. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, two days later, they'd, they'd managed to sort of bring me bring me off life support um and obviously everything that had gone on in that meantime my wife was there my dad um they'd been flown out um and as I found out later on my wife was more sort of flown out to almost sort of give the okay to turn the life support off (laughs) wow (laughs) so within that sort of first five minutes of confusion I I still thought I was in medicine hat. Um, I was confused as to why my wife was there. Um, and then that's when I got the news. Um, a, a doctor had stepped in and, and had said they they had to amputate. Um, but obviously being a, a Canadian hospital, they needed my consent, my permission to take the leg. Which, would, they, would they have done it sooner if it was in the UK? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think it would have probably gone that day um but i i knew if my leg went that my career was done so um i wasn't agreeing at first um i i was willing to compromise and i said you can take it below the knee uh friends of mine who had lost their legs above the knee on previous tours had had struggled um whereas the ones who had kept their knee seemed to sort of really sort of make some rapid progress and some even able to stay in so at first I wouldn't I wouldn't sign the consent form unless I could keep my knee um until yeah the reality was that you know if we don't sort of take it today you're not going to see the day out um and I'd only just become a dad for the first time a few months prior so yeah your wife your wife had a say on it didn't she she did yeah yeah (laughs) um I was given the sort of the talk and then yeah I signed a bit of paper and um and once once they'd amputated I I sort of started to pick up and they had to take me back in to take take more and um because by that point sort of infection and stuff had kicked in I was getting organ failure and um so once they'd taken it to a point that what was left was relatively healthy I started to sort of make progress then so can you talk me through what kind of mental state you were in uh, and how you dealt with that because obviously i know if you've got a choice between being alive and being with your kid or having your leg it's a no-brainer but still mentally you i I can imagine you would still have been not in a great place so could you just talk me through take me back to like um how you because obviously what you've achieved since there must have been some sort of turning point so i imagine correct me if i'm wrong that was like kind of like your darkest days coming to terms with that so how did you come to terms with that um at the time obviously realizing that they'd saved my life you know the lads on the ground the surgeons they'd all played their part in keeping me alive and that I shouldn't be alive um I was taking the positives from that the the hardest part was a sort of I was in denial for a little while as to I thought I could stay in the army I thought the prosthetic legs are good. I'll, I'll be able to sort of still get promoted into the next rank and I can stay in. And that bit, um, I, I was under this sort of full sense that I'll get a prosthetic leg and I'll still be a grenadier. I'll be fine. The thing that upset me the most was that I thought I might never play football again. Um, at the time, obviously I hadn't heard of sort of amputee football and things like that. So that was what was upsetting me early on. Uh, especially, like I said, I'd, I'd just had a little boy and the thought of kicking a football around in the back garden with your son. And um, those were the things that were going around in my mind. Um, 
until I was flown back to England and I was taken after a couple of weeks in intensive care and I was taken up onto the military ward. And that's where you get a sense of perspective. Um, all of those lads were being flown back from Afghanistan and were a lot worse off than myself in terms of their injuries. Mm. So that's when you you start to pick the positives and you think, well, you know, that lad over there is a triple amputee and I'm only missing the one leg. So I'm all right. Um, and you, you just look for little positives and then you, you accept that you're missing a leg um, and you start to make little goals, right? I need to get into my wheelchair. I need to get up onto crutches. I need to get walking. And it was just little, little bits of progress all the time. Mm. Um, I, I love that. And again, it, it's, it's, it's very relevant to people uh, that are struggling right now. It's very easy to look at the negatives because again, yeah. you had lost your leg and it's a shit situation, but where would that have got you just dwelling on that? Then you're looking yeah. at there is actually still some positives, as you said. There's people that are a lot worse off, and again, it's it's easier. The people right now that are struggling, like so the listeners that you, you might be struggling right now with the coronavirus and lockdown, and all sort of going on. But there's people a lot worse off. So it's a case of just to be grateful for what you've got. And this is why I always talk about gratitude. I, I harp on about gratitude time and time again, which is why I did my research into you. I absolutely love your outlook, which is why I'm so looking forward to talking to you because from everything I picked up about you, it was right. I've got this, and it's focusing what you can do not what yeah. you couldn't do. And as you said, it's those little goals. So again, it's just it's just focusing on the small steps you can make to do something towards progressing rather than just focusing on all the negatives. So I love the fact that you said that. I love the fact of even in this situation, which wasn't great, it was shit, but there's nothing you could do about it. So yeah. you had two choices. You can mope, be miserable, or you could actually be like, right, well, actually, let's just crack on with this like, and let's make the most of it. Yeah, I... You know, no amount of sort of feeling sorry for myself was going to bring the leg back. Um, you know, this the way I sort of saw it was this is the card I've been dealt and I'm going to make the best of it. Um, and like I said, I was surrounded. I think the big difference between um, perhaps people that have had to have their leg amputated through the NHS and lads I've got to know through the different sports and stuff that have become amputees that way, it's a lonely, a lonely sort of... Mm rehabilitation on your own, not really sort of surrounded by people that, you know, are in the same situation. Whereas for me, I was on a ward with all squaddies. So everyone's still got the same sense of humor. Everyone's grateful they're still alive because they know they shouldn't be. Mm. And there's lads that are a lot worse off and they're the ones that are the most positive. Um, what the one, the one in particular in, it was just a, an infectious sort of good mood, I suppose, on the ward. Because mm. every day people were getting a little bit better. And the lad opposite me, um, Spider, his name was, and he'd lost both of his both of his legs above the knee and his elbow uh, and his arm above the elbow. And he had so he had one arm left and it was broken. Um, and that was that was from stepping on an IED. And within a week of me being on the ward. He was getting himself into his wheelchair, um, taking himself down to the, the hospital restaurant to go and see his, his wife and boy. And never in all of that time that I was in did I ever hear him sort of pity himself, moan. Um, he just cracked on. And having him in the bed opposite me was probably the best thing for me because I, I looked at myself and was like, I've got absolutely nothing to complain about. So... He was the person that from day one was my inspiration almost. My inspiration, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I looked at him and just like I was in awe of the fact that he was just cracking on with how badly injured he was. Um so yeah, for, for people like Spider, I took a lot from him. So then moving out of that environment, I imagine that's probably when it sort of sunk in like reality. You're back at home, you're not surrounded by positivity. Um were there some dark days when you got home, like trying to um, get back into almost like civilian life? Because obviously you discharged from the army. So then you kind of just left now, uh, again, with, with, with sort of no identity because your identity was the army. Uh, you've now got one leg. What was that like to sort of almost like have to start again? Like what, what was what was that like? I know you said that your wife helped you through it and you sort of wrote a list of stuff, but was that the darkest sort of time for you? And then how did you come through that? Um, it's almost been a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. I've had, I've had some massive highs and then 
yeah, equally some some sort of real lows. Um, and early on, sort of coming out of hospital uh, before our house had been sort of adapted, you know, to to cater for the needs that I would have now. Um, I remember obviously from the from the gunshot from my shoulder, I wasn't strong enough at that point in the early stages to be up on crutches. Um, and our house hadn't been adapted with with ramps, wet rooms, all that sort of stuff that I would need. And I think my first night back from hospital, um, I had to sort of bum shuffle up the stairs to get up to bed. And, you know, I'd lost a lot of weight in hospital and was almost sort of unrecognisable. I was so weak. I couldn't, I couldn't hop up the stairs. I wasn't strong enough to sort of support myself in that way. And then my wife sort of followed me up, sort of making sure I was all right. And then when I got to the top of the stairs, I just, that feeling of sort of being weak and vulnerable and, you know, she'd always, she'd always called me like a big brave soldier. Mm. And at that point I couldn't have felt further from that. Um, you know, I felt almost like sort of helpless. Um, and that was, uh, the early realization that, like you say, you know, you're not surrounded by all those positive people now, and this is, just, this is your reality. Um, so the, the low points more come times like that when you're on your own and, um, yeah, once I'd I'd gone through my sort of rehabilitation, got walking, got running, all that sort of stuff, and um, it's when when you're discharged from the army, it felt like um, it felt a positive at the time because you're almost between between sort of roles. You're when you're going for rehabilitation, you're still technically serving, you're still a part of the army, but you're not a deployable soldier. You're not of any use. Mm. Um, and you feel a bit like that. So you, you get to a point at Headley Court where I just want to be out. I want to be discharged. I want to, it's, it's either or. I want to yeah. be a civilian or I want to be a soldier. And I can't be a soldier. So I just want to get out of here and, and move on. So I'd pushed for my medical discharge and I'd, I'd retrained. I'd, I'd gone through my personal trainer's qualification, everything like that. And within a sort of three months or so of, of not serving anymore, I felt like I'd lost that sort of purpose. Mm. Um, and, and that was when I said, I, I need, I need an adrenaline rush. I need a focus some discipline, something to get me out of bed and what something to that's out of my depth for now, but I need something to really challenge me. Yeah. Uh, to focus on. Yeah. And that, that was where, that was where bodybuilding came from. Um, I, I'd been looking throughout my time at Headley, uh, a lot of the occupational therapists and physios and all the people that sort of work with you, the social workers are trying to get you to pick a new career. Like, you know, it'll just, something just come to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, like, so some lads to be fair had, had their mindset on, on new careers. And I was just, I don't know, uh, something, something physical. Um, and then, yeah, when, when I'd left and I'd started to look online at, at different sort of bodybuilders and amputees, and I'd found a couple in America that had competed. And, um, so I started looking over here and, uh, one competition in particular at the time, uh, purely it was, was, Oh was, yeah. Oh, yeah. I competed to purely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they, they were including a disability class. What, what year did you compete in Pure Elite? Uh, 2014. That, oh, that might have been the year before me. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. My, yeah. No, fuck off. Yeah, I was in yeah, Margate. Yeah. I was still yeah. checking to see what, uh, what show it was. I, I definitely, I hundred percent in Margate, uh, but I can't remember what year it was. It was either 2014 or 2015 that I competed in Margate Pure Elite. Yeah. Fuck out. That would be bizarre if I was on the same show as you. Yeah, that was, that was the biggest turning point because when I'd, I've always had this thing of rather than keeping things to myself, um, if I put it out there, you know, say it's a sort of lads that I've served with and stuff, it puts that added pressure on me that I have to see it through. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've made it public, so I've got to do it. I've got, I've got a duty to do it now. Yeah. So early on, I was like, I'm going to do a bodybuilding competition. I've entered, and that night I'd found pure elite. It was in November. It was a few days before remembrance day. So it felt quite fitting. I was like, I'm just going to enter. Um, 
So then how did you find the uh, the bodybuilding experience then? So yeah, you made the decision to do it. Um, I, I heard you elicited, 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 I think that's the right word, hired yeah. <laughs> um, one of the lads uh, at your gym. It's basically a case of just tell them what to do and I'll do it. So how did you then find that? Because again, I imagine from the military background, you're very disciplined. Tell them what to yeah. do, I'll do it. And was that then your kind of attitude with it? Yeah, yeah. I That was the thing that really appealed to me was the routine, the discipline. Um, like I said, obviously not wanting to let someone else down. Someone was sort of kind enough to invest their time and experience in me. So I I had an obligation to sort of do him justice. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, obviously it posed some challenges for him because in terms of cardio, I was quite limited to what I could do. What, what, what could um, you do? So I, I was just going out for, I was putting bin bags and all sorts on and going out for walks. And um, the the biggest the biggest sort of thing that I, I hadn't sort of prepared for was as my body fat had started to drop, so did the volume of my stump, my, my amputated leg. So then I was having issues with getting my leg to stay on and all things I'd never really... How high up, how high up is the amputation? I don't actually think I know that. How high up do they end up taking it in the end? Uh, I'm sort of mid thigh. Mid thigh. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's quite quite high up, but it's um, when they because of the tourniquets, a lot of the tissue and muscle had, had died off. So I I had my hamstrings taken, my adductor muscles, um, three of my quads are gone. So I've I've got very little sort of stability, and if, if I if I tense the leg one of the quads sort of tenses and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the glute is, is sort of weak from where the, where the rounds entered. So, um, but yeah, in terms of cardio, I was, I was sort of walking and stuff like that or going out on crutches. And, um, I even resorted to using a children's trampoline at one point, you know, just, just, yeah, yeah, yeah no, just something different. Um, and then I invested in a, a hand bike. So I was able to sort of use that and, um yeah just it just meant sort of thinking outside the box a little bit when it came to cardio so you you say you entered that show and you're the only person that so you basically went in and then you ended up winning that show didn't you the, the first one um yeah. and yeah. then word spread and you ended up going to america now can you tell the story of when you went to america uh, and you ended up bumping into phil heath and that story because i think that's absolutely bizarre yeah so um again sort of the more positive side of social media um the video of myself and the other lads up on stage in margate had sort of spread and caught the eye of the head of the npc at the time in america and he it tweeted me and he'd said about you know coming over to the states um and i thought i thought it was someone taking the piss to be honest <laughs> so i i sort of messaged him back and said yeah i'd you know, I'd love to. And, and we got talking and I was like, wow, he's, he's deadly serious. And it was the Phil Heath classic in Houston. Um, so when, when I realized, you know, this, this bloke's deadly serious, I, I booked my flights, booked my hotel again, got straight back into, into prep. Um, and then yeah, come the March, uh, I'd flown over. I was there for a couple of days beforehand just to sort of soak it all up really. Um, and yeah on the day of the competition itself the the organizer the one who'd invited me over um he said oh we got we got a bit of a surprise for you this evening because we we did like a sort of prelims in the morning and then in the evening it was the sort of the finals so to speak um excuse me and he so he said we got a bit of a surprise for you this evening and I just thought, you know, a bit of bunch of flowers or something like that. And so I, I, I did the, did the routine and that in the morning. Um, it was surreal. I mean, it was a sort of four, four and a half thousand people sort of packed into an arena. It was, um, and when they sort of spoke a little bit about my backstory, like flown from England, next forces, I had like this sort of standing ovation to the point where I couldn't hear my routine music and I just had to, stop and yeah it was, it was it was surreal because um, because the first show you did uh, i remember you telling me yes you won it but it's a much it's a massive anticlimax because it was kind of just you so you prepared for all this stuff anticlimax then that show uh correct me if i'm wrong is that when you got that adrenaline rush again 
Did you get yeah, that? I, thing? I, the the first one I did in Margate, I competed with two lads who had. Oh, sorry. I, 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 yes, yeah, yeah. so I, I, I thought that was this show. Sorry, because I was going to link, link back into that. So, <laughs> so let, let's talk about the 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 um the one in America, and then we'll link back to that because I, I wanted to link into that. So I've I've got my timings completely mixed up there. Well, that's so, that's, so, so um, did you get the adrenaline rush then you were searching for at this massive one in America? Was that kind of like the first time you kind of got that? I I I'd felt it on the one in Margate purely because my wife was there, some friends had come down and yeah, this sort of the reaction of the crowd. Um, yeah, I, I was sort of hooked then. Um, so when the opportunity came to compete again, I jumped at the chance. I wanted, I'd have, I'd have gone back on stage the next day if, if the opportunity had come about because it was such a high. Um, 4,000 4, people in America. That's like, that's another level in it. Yeah. Yeah. They're so, so enthusiastic and, especially when it comes to the way they are towards the forces. Um, yeah, it was, it was surreal. And so the, the prelims had finished in the morning. I, I was staying at a hotel literally opposite the arena. So I'd gone back for a couple of hours and then the evening show, I was aware that Phil Heath was going to be doing a guest pose. Um, and so I'd, I'd gone up again. I, I, I was on my own in the dis- disability class Um just where the other athletes hadn't hadn't turned up on the day of the registration and stuff, and so that that for me was that that was the anticlimax in terms of I'd put in so much time and effort and wanting to test myself against what I thought would be some of the best in the world in in terms of disabled bodybuilding. Mm. Um, so yeah, I went back across to the arena for the evening part, uh, a sort of different crowd, even more sort of electric in that sense, and. Just as I went to make my way on stage, the security guard just off to the side had said, you know, when you come off, can you just sort of wait there? Um, so I, was, I wasn't thinking it'd be anything positive. I was more just, <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, all the, all the lights went down. They seemed to get this separate speaker system for, you know, the, the music went up a notch and sort of Phil Heath made almost like a ring walk entrance through the arena sort of through all the people on the floor seats up onto the stage so I'm more sort of thinking like wow like I'm so close to the stage and you know he did his guest pose because for, like for people who don't know Phil Heath is like the granddaddy of bodybuilding like he's like the modern day Arnold Schwarzenegger he's one of the greatest yeah. bodybuilders of all time so this so people who don't know that's the kind of person we're talking about here like this guy is like a human balloon he's absolutely massive heavyweight bodybuilder one of the top bodybuilders of all time and then Mark's just been watching him go through the crowd yeah. and go on stage so carry on don't interrupt you but just in case so no one that so people don't yeah. realize how big this is because like <laughs> people might not have ever heard of him yeah he's um obviously like you know my mouth was sort of dry and stuff just just being that close to sort of watch him um and yeah the magnitude of just realizing how big a several times mr olympia at that point is um mm. So that that for me, I, I was like, this this is brilliant. Like this must be the sort of surprise I get to be this close. And then Bob Chicharillo uh, was the MC that day. Um, once he'd finished his guest pose, went over to speak to him on stage, sort of with the microphone and stuff. And they were talking about Mr. Olympia and everything like that. And and then they'd start to talk about um, that they had sort of a very special guest come all the way from England. And I, I knew from backstage I was the only one that, were, that was from England. Um, and they said about inviting him up. And then a security guard sort of gave me a nudge and he was like, that's you. And <laughs> well, okay. Like, uh, <laughs> I walked up on stage um, and, yeah, was was stood sort of with, with Bob Chicharillo and Phil Heath and, and they, you know, that um, they'd suggested – a pose down <laughs> um, and yeah yeah so here I am stood literally sort of a foot away from Phil Heath and you know he says you fancy fancy doing a pose down and the music comes on oh, and I'm opposite him doing sort of most muscular and oh um yeah I, I was that that for me it, it's still despite all of the things I've done since that's still probably the thing that I'm most known for in the gym and stuff is that bloke who was with Phil Heath <laughs> on stage. Like, um, and that was the real, 
turning point because I'd I'd come off come off of stage after that. I was I was absolutely sort of buzzing and um people back home were like, Oh, you you've gone viral, this, that and the other. And to be fair at the time I had no idea what that meant. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I've been on stage with Phil Heath, you know, that's that's as good as it gets really. Um and then it was the flight home my phone just went mad and it was sort of muscle and fitness magazine, flex magazine. Um, Nick Orton, who was running body power at the Mm -hmm. time, sort of inviting me to, to guest pose on an IFBB stage. And it just spiraled from that, that moment. Um, you know, seeing, seeing my, the, the, asking if they could put the picture in muscle and fitness and all of the American magazines and, suddenly my face was was everywhere um and yeah I, I had i had another bodybuilding competition a few weeks later and it was that's the bloke that was on stage with phil heath and that's almost a, as how i became known in bodybuilding <laughs> so you then transitioned from bodybuilding you did, you did a, a number of shows um because again i, I want to make sure we get the whole story of yourself because again it's not just bodybuilding that you've done like this is the thing about uh, about, about you it's you've been successful in whatever you've put your mind to. So like I said, you, you were very successful in the army. You've come out of the army. You've then gone into bodybuilding. You've been very successful at bodybuilding. You then decided to go into powerlifting. So can you just sort of tell me a bit about that? Because it was one of the things where you kind of just went to a, correct me if I'm wrong, the disabled uh, uh, powerlifter basically said to you, um, do you want to come down to this sort of trial day kind of thing? You kind of went there, had a bit of a go at it, realized you were kind of okay. And it was like six months later, you entered into a, a show or something how did that work out work out yeah uh, six weeks six, we- six, six weeks Fucking yeah. <laughs> uh, um so when the when the season for bodybuilding had finished it was around about september 15 um so obviously i'd i'd done a number of shows so i dieted for a long time that year and i was just sort of enjoying calories um, <laughs> i know that feeling i know that feeling after <laughs> yeah. you've competed i know that I, I was i was really enjoying it um and i'd sort of my my strength and everything like that started to sort of really progress and um that coincided with yeah a lad that had followed me uh he was the organizer the founder of britain's strongest disabled man and he said oh we're, we're doing um sort of an open day for for disabled sort of men and women to come and have a go at strong man, you know, pull a sled, pull a truck, press a log, lift some Atlas stones. Um, and I'd grown up loving watching world's strongest man at Christmas and yeah. never, ever thought for a second that I would get the opportunity to do something like that. You know, the, when, when you grow up watching the likes of Magnus for Magnuson, you think that's another level of strength. Like I didn't think I had that in the locker. Um, and I went down, I was a, I was a little bit hesitant because the whole mindset throughout the military in your rehabilitation is get on a prosthetic, get walking, um, sort of man up and crack on basically. Yeah. And whereas disabled strongman would mean because I was an above knee, I would need to compete in the wheelchair class, uh, the seated, um, class and the thought of being in a wheelchair really didn't appeal to me at that time. Um, so I was like, well, I'll go down, I'll, I'll give it a go, but I'm not sure. I liked in bodybuilding, I wasn't in a wheelchair class there. I was up, stood up as a, you know, stood with able-bodied bodybuilders uh, in some competitions. And mm-hmm. I liked that. I wanted to feel as as normal and as able-bodied as possible in that sense. Um, but I went down, I I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, never touched an Atlas stone or anything like that before. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'd started off on 40, 50 kilo stone that went over quick. And as I like, fancy trying this stone, this stone. And at the time, at, at that point, the reigning world strongest disabled man was a brick and the stones in competitions up to that point only went up to 90 kilo and he was there to demonstrate the stones and stuff and the 90 flew over um for myself and he said do you want to while you're sat in the wheelchair do you want to try the 100 i was like well i'll give it a go um <laughs> i had no tacky or anything like that and i was just a complete sort of novice um and the 100 went over and um 
so they were doing a little sort of YouTube thing at the time and the bloke interview him. Um, he said, you, you realize you've just done a heavier stone than the reigning sort of world's strongest. Oh, have I? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it was just, I was just sort of like thinking, oh, I've just had a good day. I just, you know, I've touched an Atlas stone and I've yeah. sort of done some sleds and done some fun stuff really. Um, and yeah, the the organizer of Britain's was there, and he looked. He went, look, we've we've got Britain's in six weeks. You know, why don't you enter? Um, and I was like, oh, I, I don't know if I'll be, you know, sort of good enough. Uh, you know, the best in Britain sort of coming together. You know, some of them have had years of of competing. Like I, I don't know. Um, and I got home. I spoke to my wife, and I was like, what do you reckon? And I said, like, I've absolutely loved the training day so I, I did I entered um and tried to find some local gyms that had stones logs which they're few and far between to be mm, honest yeah um and just did what I could just improvised um and that that six weeks was thinking like I've had barely any time like I I could do with another six weeks minimum and there were 23 including myself in in my class that day um so i was looking around i was like if i can come top 10 i'll be ecstatic you know watch people um i've always sort of been open when it was bodybuilding in the gym and stuff like that being willing and, and as a soldier being willing to sort of learn from people with more experience you know keeping an open mind and, and being prepared to listen so i saw britons as the opportunity to watch people you know watch learn yeah just sort of learn techniques and ask people pick their brains um and so that was that was what i saw britain's as is a learning curve and then the first event came up and it was the truck pool um we went in alphabetical so i was one of the last to go um and then just as i was sort of sitting down sort of being harnessed up ready for my sort of arm over arm uh, my my two children um pulled out like a sort of banner thing and you know sort of shouting oh, come on daddy and it just started raining and um the moment sort of i saw them it was it was like the truck was weightless um and as soon as the whistle went i just sort of put my head down watched the watch the rope uh, and just went for it and magnus for magnuson was the head referee so having four times world's strongest man watching you it was like I'm going to put everything into this. Um, and I, I won, I won the truck pool. So yeah, sort of. Well, after, not, well, not, not only the truck pool, like I said, you, yeah. so, so how many events were there in total? For uh, that six event? events on that competition. How many did you win in total of events? Uh, I won the truck pool, the Hercules hold, uh, and the car deadlift that day. And um, what happened? Then what happened? Uh, then I, I was crowned Britain's strongest disabled man. So, mate, un- honestly, first fucking try. I, yeah. I, but don't, mate, do you know I heard your story? I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy goes into bodybuilding, wins his first show. <laughs> goes into goes into um, strongman, wins his first show. I, yeah. Mate, unbelievable. So, <laughs> you then ended up. Did you end up when you went to Worlds? Um, where did you come in the Worlds? That was, to be fair. That was too too soon, I think. Oh yeah, hundred percent would. Yeah, that yeah. is literally the best <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, I came sixth that day. Um, sort of, I think there were ten of us, and yeah, but mate, mate. Still, you, the fact you've hardly been doing it for very long, and you still managed yeah. to hold your own. Uh, did you then win it for a second time as well, Britain's Strongest Man? Are you, are you two time. Yeah, the following year, I won Britain's again. Um, I'd I'd invested by that point in all my own kit. I had stones, logs bars my my garage was fully kitted out and um i'd gone to train with lawrence chalet and pick his brains for a couple of hours and worked on my log press and all, all my sort of week events so to speak and i just shut myself away for months and trained and trained and trained and yeah that britain's uh i won three of the events and came second on the other two so i I'd, I'd really improved sort of knuckled down on it yeah um so to then sort of show you the kind of person the mark is he then 
decided to go into amputee football. So I'm not going to spend too much time on amputee football purely because I want to get some two really good questions out of you to add some value to my audience. But to kind of summarise Mark as a human, he then goes into amputee football, plays for Arsenal and ends up winning the league. So, yeah. I mean, mate, what the fuck? Like literally, whatever you turn your hand to, you just go in and absolutely boss it. And I absolutely love that. So again, we're talking off air. Um, again, I'm going to put your Instagram uh, handle in the show notes. So I strongly recommend anyone that's, that hasn't ever seen amputee football to go and follow Mark because as I said before, mate, I, I, I play football, I'm a goalkeeper. Um, and I, I was watching you train with your friend and it's fucking unreal. Like the <laughs> shit that you guys are doing. I'm like, honestly, mate, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, so I just then want to sort of ask you two questions because I'm going to very, very cautiously time. Um, but what advice, because obviously your mindset and how you are as a person and how you apply yourself to life, clearly throughout your entire life, not just since losing your leg, uh, you're a very unique individual. Like your mindset with stuff, how you approach things um, is very, very unique. So what advice would you give to someone who feels stuck and out of control in their life right now? Because a lot of people do feel stuck. They feel, especially what's going on now, out of control. Now, yeah. you've been in those situations yourself, again, to, to, to degrees that I hope people don't have to go to. But what advice would you give to someone? For me personally, um, I, I went through, through counselling uh, at, my, at my lowest and being in a point of admitting that I was sort of not doing too great was probably the first stage. Um, and, and buying into the process. Um, the things I took away from it are, and, and things that I still apply to sort of every day now, um, I try and make sure that at least one thing every single day, no matter how small it is, is a positive. Um, even if that's, you know, I've been for a walk or I've taken the children to something that's made my day better. Um, and it's achievable. Something that you can tick off at the end of the day and you go, today today wasn't a sort of wasted day. I've done something positive. Um, I, I was probably ruthless in the sense of anyone that had a negative impact on me, I distanced myself from. Uh, I surrounded myself like I was in hospital with just positive people, people that brought something good to my life. Um, I, I sort of socialized opened up a lot more um and actually realized that a lot of other people had struggled in their own way mm -hmm. and we almost sort of bounced off each other whether it was over a beer or stuff like that and i just um i, I sit and watch comedies and and stuff like that stuff that you know makes you laugh and makes you happy and and in times like this obviously where a lot of people are stuck home I don't watch the news. I don't read no, newspapers. No, I don't listen to the news on the radio. Like I, I stick on in betweeners and stuff like that. And yeah. it's just something that makes me smile and laugh. Um, and like I said, all, all of my mates that I've got sort of close are all very sort of infectiously positive people. And I think that's the thing, as long as your sort of support circle is, is good, everything sort of tends to sort of spiral from that in a good way. Mm. Um, and just like I said, it, each, each of these lockdowns that we've, we've been in, um, I've set myself a goal, regardless of how long we're in it for something positive I want to achieve by the end of this. Um, that. and that keeps me looking forward rather than sort of looking back and going, well, that's the life that we had two years ago. I've got something, this one, for instance, um, you know, is to sort of get my, my body fat percentage down and to come out of it match fit so that when the league starts, I'm good to go. Um, so I'm always looking forward and not backwards. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what sort of, that, 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 that's what I've, I took from counselling is, is all of the tiny little positives and they all add up. One, one sort of little positive added into two things and three things and by the end of the week, you've had a good week. Um, that so again i think I've, i must have said this a million times on podcast i can't remember the problem is right now because i do so much talking with people i can't remember if i say things on a podcast if i say it to a client i can't remember but again what mark's saying is just about winning the day 
So again, I'm going to talk about gratitude, the power of gratitude. Again, I did a whole podcast on the power of gratitude. And again, we touched on it earlier on in the podcast, but again, that's what Mark's talking about. Like just always look for the positive. There's always positives in anything there. But on top of that, he's talking about winning the day. So if you win the day, you win the week. Because again, bear in mind the seven days in a week. So all you've got to do is just win four days of the week. Win four days of the week, you win the days, you win the week. You win the week, you win the month, you win the month, you win the year. That is the key to success. And that goes for anything, whether it's business, whether it's fat loss, whatever it is, just win the day. And that's exactly what Mark's saying. Just literally just pick the positives for the day. Don't focus on the negatives and just keep smashing forward. Mark, uh, where can people find out more about you? Because you've also got a book, which the link will be um, uh, will be in the show notes, uh, which is called Strength of Mind, which is available on Amazon. Um, but where else can people find more about you? Uh, so I'm on, I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, uh, all the same name. So Mark Smith, amputee footballer. Um, the idea behind those three pages is is just to try and motivate people. Uh, I've got a lot of people follow me that have recently become amputees themselves. Um, people have, have messaged more frequently throughout these lockdowns as to the fact that they're struggling. They just need something sort of some sort of encouragement. Um, so I try and keep my pages very sort of positive. Uh, I try and sort of show as an amputee, uh, in particular sort of what can be done. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis in your rehabilitation and what you won't be able to do anymore. Um, so my page from the day that I set it up was more about proving what could be done. Um, and that's what I try and sort of put with all my posts. No, mate, I, I absolutely love it. And again, I love everything about what you stand for. I absolutely love it. Again, I've actually got your book. Uh, I, I, I'm dyslexic. I didn't have time to read it in time for this, but I have got your book. Uh, so, uh, so again, the link's in the show notes for that. Give Mark a follow. Again, the guy's absolutely awesome. Um, Mark, thank you ever so much for taking the time this evening to talk to me. No, it's very kind. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, no, you're very welcome. Thank you.